21. Boiling. Do the fellows ever want pudding? Plumbed up three times a week. I shall have to give up the job. Then. For I couldn't make plumbed up to save my life. That's just what I used to say when I first went as cook aboard ship. But I had a shot at it. And a nice mess I made of it. But when I came home from that trip I gave another cook a shilling to teach me how to make a few fancy things. And now I'm thought as good a cook as any in the North Sea. But you know how to make plumbed up. I don't. I will tell you. When I discovered how to make anything, I put the particulars down in writing in a little book. I will lend you the book. The bow-legged cook put his hand in his pocket and drew out a grimy, paper-covered notebook. Plumbed up comes first, he said, as he handed the book to Charlie. Can you read it? There are a few words which I can't quite understand, Charlie replied, for the cookery book was an extraordinary work. The writing was bad, the spelling was worse, and the abbreviations were confusing, but the cook went right through the book with him then and there. Now you'll be able to cook anything, he declared, when they had got to the end. I'm not so sure of that, Charlie answered, but anyhow, I shall have some idea of how to set to work. What time tomorrow shall I have to be aboard? At six in the morning. Won't the skipper discover me before we get out of the river? No, he doesn't often pop his head into the galley. Anyhow, he cannot do without a cook, and if he does see you, he won't turn you off when he finds that I am not aboard. I will write a letter to the mate for you to give him, and perhaps he won't say a word to the skipper about you. Don't you worry yourself. You will be all right. Charlie slept that night at the fisherman's home. He had a clean and comfortable bed for ninepence, and a good breakfast for a few coppers. The bow-legged cook met him in the morning outside the home, and gave him a letter to the mate. It took me two hours to write, he declared, and when I finished it I didn't think it was worth while going to sleep. But that doesn't matter, I shall get plenty of sleep during the next few weeks. I'm going to live like a gentleman for a time. Charlie smiled, and drew his purse out of his pocket. Here is three pounds, he said. The other three I will give you when I return. Suppose you don't return, sir. Accidents happen at sea as well as on land. If you got washed overboard, should I lose my three pounds? Oh, no. I have written to my father telling him the agreement I have made with you, and if I should not return he will pay you the money, here is his address, thank you, sir, or, very much, the cook answered, and now, as it's a quarter to six, you had better hurry off to the Sparrowhawk, light the fire and put the kettle on it directly you get aboard, the chaps will want some too long before they have their breakfast, I'll remember, Charlie promised, goodbye, and with his bundle of belongings on his shoulder, he hurried off to where the sparrowhawk lay. Where is the mate? Charlie inquired of a boy who looked at him sharply as he went aboard the sparrowhawk. Ford, the boy answered. Charlie went forward, and seeing a man standing with his arms folded, watching three men who were working hard, concluded rightly that he was the mate, and handed him the cook's letter. Who is it from? The mate asked. The cook. Sir, or? Charlie answered. The mate tore open the envelope and glanced at the letter. He wrote it with a toasting fork, I should think, the mate declared, after looking at it for a few moments, he says he is ill, at any rate, he has not turned up, so you're his substitute, well, take your things below and get into the galley sharp, I want a mug of tea as soon as possible, Charlie went down into the fox single quote as single quote a small, dark, stifling place where eight men slept, 
be thought of having to spend his nights in that dirty, close den made him half inclined to jump ashore before the boat started, quickly overcoming the thought, he set to work to discover which was his bank, and while he was searching for some sign that would help him to settle the matter, a Chinaman came below, he was dressed in ordinary North Sea fisherman's clothes, and his pigtail was wound tightly round the top of his head, Charlie mistook his natural expression for a friendly smile, and therefore smiled in return, which is the cook's bank, he asked immediately, and the Chinaman pointed it out to him, the Chinaman watched Charlie as he stowed his things away and donned his cook's apron, then he exclaimed suddenly, you know sailor man, Charlie looked at the Chinaman in surprise, how can you tell, he asked, never mind, the Chinaman answered, now smiling in reality, me no tell anyone, me likey you first chop, Charlie's knowledge of pidgin English was slight, but he concluded that first chop meant very much, and was pleased to find that he had made one friend so quickly, my name Ping Wang, the Chinaman continued, but sailor men Kalimi Chinay, skippered Lamont Wally bad man, Kalimi tellable bad names, good morning, no can stop, Ping Wang went on deck, and a few moments later Charlie followed and hurried to the galley, where his difficulties commenced, in spite of all his efforts he could not light the fire, and, remembering the bow-leg cook's injunction to keep the kettle always boiling, he began to think that he was making a very bad start, he left the galley in order to ask one of the men to show him how to make the fire burn, and met Ping Wang, can tell me how light he fire, Charlie asked, Ping Wang nodded his head, popped into the galley, and pointed out to Charlie that he had omitted to pull out the damper, then he relayed the fire, and, when he lighted it, it burned up quickly, you know sailor man, you know cook, Ping Wang whispered merrily, and then hurried away, Ping Wang and I will get on very well together, Charlie said to himself as he filled the huge kettle with water, the kettle boiled quickly, and almost immediately after the ship had left the dock the mate's mug of tea was ready, have you given the skipper any? The mate asked, and when Charlie replied Mumber he exclaimed, You had better be quick and take him some. Then, Charlie filled another mug with tea and took it up on the bridge. But, just as he reached the top step of the ladder, he stumbled, and, to prevent himself from falling, dropped the mug. It fell with a crash on the bridge, and the tea splashed the skipper's short trousers, which he had not yet changed. Skipper Drummond, a short, stout, ill-tempered fellow was thoroughly disliked by everyone who knew him. He glared at Charlie for a moment as if he had committed some terrible offense, and then shouted fiercely what did you do that for, you idiot? It was an accident, Charlie answered bluntly, indignant at being abused, saying it was an accident won't mend the mug, I will pay for a new one, Charlie rather unwisely replied, pay for it, will you? So we have got a millionaire aboard, I suppose, I wonder you ever came to see. Why did you, do the police want you, feeling that if he remained on the bridge he might speak his mind too freely, Charlie turned to go, but the skipper called him back, come here, you ape, he shouted, do you think I am going to pick up these pieces, gather them up and throw them overboard, continued on page 202, afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 199. As soon as Charlie had filled another mug with tea, he hurried back to the bridge. You have been a fine long time getting this, the skipper declared, anxious to resume bullying. But Charlie was determined not to give him an occasion for fault-finding, 
and therefore he made no reply, but, as he walked back to his galley, he vowed to himself that, do what he might, the skipper should not have the satisfaction of making him miserable. Already he had come to the conclusion that the man was dishonorable, and was more than ever determined to find out to what extent he hoped to defraud his father. He found that the galley contained very few cooking utensils, but the need of them was not likely to be felt that voyage, as the provisions consisted almost entirely of tin meats. There was not even one joint of fresh or salted meat aboard. Charlie, therefore, did not have much difficulty in preparing the dinner, as each tin of provisions bore instructions for the cooking of its contents. Punctually at one o'clock he took a plate of mock turtle soup to the skipper, who was then in his cabin under the bridge. As Charlie entered, the skipper glanced at his watch hanging on a nail at the side of his bank, but, finding that he could not abuse him on the ground of being late, he contented himself with scowling, but, a few moments later, he pretended that he had a real cause for complaint. When Charlie returned with the next course the skipper said, sharply, look here, young fellow, don't you be so generous with other people's things, there is enough meat for two men here, I'll eat it this time. But remember I won't have any waste on this trawler. I know exactly what provisions you have, and if they go too quickly, I shall give you in charge for robbery. So just you be careful. Charlie had not given the skipper a very big allowance of food, and was naturally surprised at the reprimand which he had received. Had he known that the skipper had a private stock of provisions, kept under lock and key in his cabin, he would not have been surprised at his small appetite. Can I bring you anything more? Sir, Charlie asked. Mumber the skipper replied, and don't you come bothering for these things until after two o'clock. That order was given so that Charlie should not return until he had removed all traces of his private provisions. Glad to have finished for a time with the skipper, Charlie, with the aid of the ship's boy, carried the men's food to the fox single quote as single quote Lee. There was no mock turtle soup for them, but simply tinned meat, boiled and floating in brown liquid. The crew of the Sparrowhawk were a brutal, low-minded set of men, and their conversation sickened Charlie even more than the discomfort of his life, so, after swallowing a few mouthfuls of the food, he went on deck, and, going aft, sat down on a coil of rope to think, when he had been there about ten minutes Ping Wong joined him, this is the first time you have been to sea on a trawler, the Chinaman declared as he sat down beside him, how do you know, Charlie asked. Astounded to find that Ping Wan could speak excellent English, I could see that you were surprised at the way in which the men eat and talked. If you had known that they behaved in that manner, you would not have come to see. That is very likely, Charlie admitted. Why have you come? Ping Wan inquired. One must do something for a living. You could have got a better job ashore. I am certain of that. You have come to see for fun. If I had, I fancy that I should be disappointed. The skipper has been bullying you, I suppose. He bullies everyone. Yes, he has been bullying me. But I will let him know very soon that I won't stand much of it. I advise you not to quarrel with him. I should not have come aboard this trip had I known that he was coming. He told us last voyage that that was his last trip. Where did he expect to be? In jail? Mumber the Chinaman answered. Smiling, he said that he was going to retire. He was going to sell the trawler to some rich old fellow who knows nothing about such things. The mate told me that the skipper hopes to get half as much again as the trawler was worth. Last trip he cut down expenses, and he is doing the same again now.
so that the gentleman who is buying her will think the cost of running a trawler is less than it is. We are hand short this trip. Is the trawler a sound boat? This is the only one I have ever been on. But the fellows on the Fox single quote as single quotely say that she is the rottenest trawler on the North Sea. The engines are patched up, and they have to be very careful of them. Then the skipper intends to swindle the man over the sale of her. Of course he does. I hope that the man won't buy her. So do I but the skipper is confident that he will. If he doesn't, the skipper's temper will be worse than ever next voyage. I shall take very good care not to make another trip with him. Do you like a fisherman's life? No. I dislike it very much indeed. Then why are you aboard this ship? Did you not tell me that one must do something for a living? That is true, but, at the same time, I cannot understand why uneducated Chinamen should travel so many thousands of miles to become a fisherman. I came to England to make my fortune, Ping Wan declared. I thought that when I got to London, I should be able, having an English education, to get employment in the office of some merchant doing business with China. But I soon found that nobody wanted me. The only offers I received were not to my liking. One was a place in a laundry, and the other was to stand outside a tea merchants and distribute bills. No one seemed to think that it was possible for a Chinaman to be a gentleman, or to have any self-respect. At last, when all my money was gone, I got a job as steward on board a pleasure boat. The owner became bankrupt, and I was paid off at Yarmouth. I walked from Yarmouth to Grimsby, and... After I had been hanging about the docks for a few days, the skipper of this boat took me on. Then he is not such a heartless brute as I imagined, Charlie remarked. It was not out of compassion that he took me, Ping Wang answered. He said that as I had never been on a trawler, he would have to give me small wages. After I had been at sea three days I could do my work as well as any of the other men, but I only received half the wages that they did. He knew very well that I should be able to do my work after a few days' practice, and by taking me on he made a saving in his wages bill. This trip he is giving me three quarters of what he pays the other men. We were only in dock for two or three days, and I had no time to find another job. But I have made up my mind never to go to sea again on a trawler, even if I have to starve. When we get back to Grimsby I shall go to London and see if the Chinese embassy or the home for Asiatics will pay my passage home. I am afraid, however, that they will not believe my story of being able to repay them, and I do not desire charity. In fact, now I come to think of it, it would be very foolish of me to tell my story to the people at the embassy, is it? Then, such a wonderful story, an Englishman would think so, but a Chinaman would not. For a few minutes Ping One was deep in thought and Charlie got up to look at a passing Norwegian ship. When he returned to his seat on the coil of rope, Ping Wang said to him suddenly, Have you any Chinese friends? Mumber have you any English friends living in China? Mumber Ping Wang gave a slight sigh of relief. Then, if you will promise not to repeat what I tell you, he said, You shall hear my story. I promise, Charlie answered. But I hope that you are not going to tell me any anti-European plots continued on page 214. Rice paper. Chinese rice paper is a thing which we frequently hear of, but do not often see. It is very curious and pretty, but far too frail for most of the uses to which we put our English paper, and, for this reason, it has no commercial value in European countries, and is only brought away by travelers and traders as a curiosity. 
The rice paper which I have seen was cut into small squares about 3 by 2 inches, each of which had a beautiful colored picture of a Chinese man or woman. The paper was very white and thin, slightly rough, like blotting paper, stiff and brittle. It was impossible to fold it, as the least effort to bend the sheet broke it into. The pictures upon these little sheets had evidently been painted by hand, and were very beautiful and interesting. The surface of the paint was bright and clear, and the paper was transparent enough to permit the picture to be seen from the back, with all its colors and details only a little dimmed, as it seen through a thin sheet of ground glass. Notwithstanding its name, rice paper has really nothing to do with rice. It is not made from rice, nor even from the rice plant, but from the pith of a kind of ivy, the Aurelia papyrifera, which grows abundantly in the island of Formosa. This Aurelia is not much like our English ivy, it island in fact, a small tree, which may attain a height of 20 or 30 feet, and is crowned with a number of large leaves, shaped like those of the sycamore. It bears clusters of small, pale yellow flowers, which contrast beautifully with the dark green foliage. The stem is ringed with the marks of the fallen leaves, very like the stems of the castor oil plants which are often seen in pots in England. The stem of the rice paper plant is hollow and filled with a pith which, though it is rather broken in the center, is firm and compact outside. After the tree has reached a certain age, the pith becomes less serviceable, and so the tree is usually cut down when it is about 12 feet high. Before it has attained its full growth, the stem is cut into a length of 9 or 12 inches each, and the pith is pushed out by inserting a stick at one end, and hammering it through the core of the tree. The little rolls of pith obtained in this way are placed in hollow bamboos, which permit them to swell a little, but prevent them from curling up as they dry. When properly dried, they are ready for the cutting, which is the really skillful part of the making of rice paper. The man who cuts up the pith has a long, sharp knife, which he places against the side of the roll of pith in such a way that it will take off the thin pairing as he turns the roll round and round. It is like paring off the bark of a lug by rolling it round against a sharp knife. With these differences, however, that the paring is as thin as paper, and that it is part of the lug itself, and goes on until the broken center is reached. The pairings, or sheets, when stripped off, are about four feet long, and they are placed one upon the other and pressed, after which they are cut into squares like those described above. The squares are made up into packets of 100 each which the Chinese sell for five or six farthings a packet. Many of these little squares are dyed or stained different colors, and are used for making little artificial flowers. Others, as we have already seen, are covered with little pictures, representing sometimes the people and the costumes of China, and sometimes the birds, butterflies, and animals of that country. There are a few other trees or plants which yield a pip from which rice paper can be made, but the Aurelia is the most important. Though the tree grows best in the northern part of Formosa, the paper is made less by the Formosans than by the Chinese, who barter their goods for the rice paper trees or logs, too tempting to be lost. A fox one day had left his cozy den, and wandered forth amid the haunts of men. What did he want? Of course he wanted food a tender duck, or something quite as good, but though he wandered far and wandered near, no duckling could he see his heart to cheer. Through fields and copses did the poor fox go, with hungry longings and a heart of woe, thought he. It's very plain that dainty food I cannot find today, still, something good may yet turn up. But stay, what's that I see hanging asleep upon the old ash tree? 
I do declare the creature is a crow not very tempting to the taste, I know, but still, if nothing better can be had, perhaps it may not taste so very bad, so up at once he jumped, and seized the bird, but how it tasted well, I've never heard, M.K., the parks of London, I I wonder if you who read this are a Londoner, and, if so, whether you have ever sailed paper boats on the Serpentine, can you remember watching your fleet of snowy papers spreading their white wings and sailing away into the far distance, after the manner of Christopher Columbus or Vasco de Gama, or have you seen your toy ships driven by fierce winds onto a lee shore bristling with cruel crags and yawning clefts, a very oceanic island no doubt, to the feathered creatures that float upon its waters, shelter beneath its rush-lined banks, and spend their whole family life within its borders, here the babies are born, and here the tiny birds take their first airings some perched on their mother's back, some swimming beside her without a thought of danger, nothing is more delightful to the children of all classes who daily throng the park than a family of ducklings having their first lesson in the way to take care of themselves, one way or another, the duck tribe come in for more practical attention than all the other birds put together, for most people like to have their kindness warmly met, and no duck ever says no to an author of food, once in a way a stately swan may condescend to pick up a bit of bun or biscuit, but it is done with such a proud air, that the duck's ready gratitude and eagerness is more attractive, here and there, in very quiet nooks overlooking the water, may be seen a group of bunnies, nibbling some dainty weed, and far too much at home to pay attention to the warlike looks and noisy cries of father duck, who clearly thinks his family is in danger, on the right of the Serpentine towards the north, a wide slope of grass and trees above the water has been fenced off for the benefit of the peacock family, and these are objects of great interest to admirers of all ages, the males come in for most attention, owing to their beauty, it is a very droll sight to see Mr. Peacock, with gorgeous tail and crest fully outspread, his richly colored breast and neck gleaming in the sunlight, bowing, strutting, and scraping before the peahen whom he admires. On this same ground moorhens and other shy aquatic birds make their home in bush and sedge, from time to time crossing the open grass, evidently aware of their safety, but taking little interest in the lookers-on. Memories of the past have very much to do with this oldest of the national parks. The Serpentine recalls to us one of London's lost rivers, the Westbourne the current of which still helps to swell its volume of water, rising in the Hampstead Heights, and passing the villages of Paddington and Kensington. This stream flowed through and often overflowed the pleasant manor of Hyde, which then belonged to the rich abbey of Westminster, and from which the present park takes its name. Good Queen Bess thought her own amusement and that of her courtiers of more importance than the enjoyment of the common folk, and filled the park with an lured stag and timid deer while for many a long day the merry toot, toot of the hunter's horn echoed amongst its glades, until merriment vanished before the grim tragedy of King Charles's execution in 1649. Then for twenty years and more the stately avenues were quiet and peaceful, and little children played beside the river until Cromwell died and Charles I.I. came to his own again. Nothing less than turning the park into a race course would content the new king, and the enclosure echoed with the sound of galloping horses whilst an army of men with pick and shovel cleared and cut out the circular drive now known as Rotten Row, a name which is supposed by some to be a corruption of the French route du Rois Way, northeast of the park, close to where the marble arch now stands, was a plot of ground connected with more horrors than could be found elsewhere in England, 
This was the site of the famous Tyburn Tree London's hanging place in the days of old, when even a child might be hanged for stealing a few pence. Many a procession of carts came from Newgate in the city, laden with men, women, boys, and girls, followed by an excited crowd eager to watch the execution. Round the gallows galleries were erected and let out at high cost to fashionable folk fine ladies and gay gallants all ready for the show. Happily humanity has made progress in the last century, and such dreadful sights have long been done away with. William I.I.I., like most of his Dutch relations, was a great gardener, and cut quite a large slice out of Hyde Park to improve the gardens of Kensington Palace, where he and Queen Mary made their home. At the same time he made a great many improvements in the actual park, although for the Serpentine we have to thank Queen Caroline, wife of George I.I. Since then Hyde Park has always been the playground of the rank and fashion of the United Kingdom, and nowhere else in England can such numbers of magnificent carriages and horses be seen as here in the season. The alleys bordering the drives are filled on summer afternoons with thousands of well-dressed people many perhaps admiring the splendid clumps of rhododendrons, which form one of the sights of the park in early summer. The rich, too, are not the only people who appreciate this national playing place. Thousands of poorly clad women bring their white-faced children from crowded courts and alleys to enjoy the fresh air, and a limited room in which to play. Turn where we will, Hyde Park Island in our times, a scene of peaceful rest both of body and mind for weary citizens, yet matters far less suitable to its beautiful surroundings have often disturbed its peace. In the days of dueling, the north side beneath the trees was a favorite place of meeting, here on a Sunday in 1712. The first Duke of Hamilton, a statesman who could ill be spared by his country, engaged Lord Mohun, and both adversaries were carried dead from the field, as we stand on the bridge, looking down and watching the quiet water, with all its living things, and the rabbits in their corner, it seems hard to believe that we are in the midst of a maze of human dwellings, and that miles and miles of busy streets surround us, but pause and listen a while, and you will hear, above the music of the birds, the ring of voices and echoes of children's laughter, above the dull hum of well-hung carriages and pattering of horses' feet, a never-ending roar the sound of the greatest city the world has ever seen, all round us, shut off only by a little space of grass and trees, lie its pleasures and its miseries, served her right, founded on fact, not long ago there was a story told of a young girl whose kindness to an old man brought her a great reward, she was in the crowd upon the occasion of Queen Victoria's first jubilee, and observed a rather shabbily dressed old gentleman who appeared to be ill. Taking him by the arm, she made a way for him through the dense throng of people, and got him safely into a quiet street. There he explained to her that he had a weak heart, and that he had foolishly ventured out sightseeing. But the excitement and the closeness had made him faint. He thanked the girl warmly for her help, and asked for her name and address which she gave him, a few years after this little adventure, the girl received a letter in a big blue envelope, it was a communication from a lawyer, who informed her that the gentleman whom she had so kindly helped on Jubilee Day had died, and had left her by his will the greater part of his large fortune, there is another story rather like this, but about a different sort of girl, a gentleman happened to read the above tale out of a newspaper as he sat with his family at breakfast, his little daughter, as she listened to her father, thought how nice it would be if she could win a fortune thus easily. So the next time she saw an old man shivering on the brink of a crossing, she went up to him, and, with a sweet smile, 
said in her politest tones, may I have the pleasure of assisting you, but the man chanced to be a cross-grained old fellow, and, thinking that the girl was making fun of him, he brandished his stick at her, whereupon, in a great fright, she ran away as fast as she could, I think you will agree with me that the little girl quite deserved this rebuff, because of the unworthiness of her motive, Edike, the flower girl, fine window plants, who will buy, shouted the man with the flower-laden donkey cart, but it was Mary, his daughter, who did most of the selling, she stood on the edge of the pavement, a plant in each hand, and smiled at the passers-by, and few could resist the pretty picture she made, they would stop and admire the flowers even if they could not afford to buy, and Mary had smiles for all, though perhaps the brightest were kept for those who made a purchase, and yet the girl's heart was heavy, and tears lay very close behind the smiles, trade had not been very brisk of late, while illness in the home had made the expenses heavy, her favorite little brother was still ailing, and seemed to make no progress, the doctor had said he needed change of air and nourishing food, but how could the doctor's orders be obeyed when money was so scarce, the morning was getting on, and still the cart had not lost much of its load, Smiles were more difficult to manage as the hope of being able to take home something dainty for Dickie's supper grew less. A lady with her little boy had just passed, but looks of admiration were all they gave. In the distance an old gentleman appeared, and he was even a more unlikely customer. He peered through his spectacles, and seemed too much wrapped up in his own thoughts to spare attention for anything else. As he was passing the cart he slipped, and would have fallen had not Mary put out her arm quickly to steady him. But, alas, in doing so the flower pot she was holding fell, and lay in fragments on the pavement, with the delicate blooms of the azalea quite ruined. Thank you, my dear, the gentleman said. It was kind of you to come to an old man's help, but he did not notice the broken flower pot, and passed on, while Mary gazed in dismay at what meant a loss they could so ill afford. Run after him, my girl, her father said. Tell him he must pay for that flower a fine thing to come damaging other folks' property, and to slip off without a word. But at that moment a girl came hurrying along the pavement. Oh, she cried, I saw what happened. That is my grandfather, and he is nearly blind. I must overtake him, and I am sure he will come back and repay you. Mary watched anxiously, and when they arrived, the old man leaning on the girl's arm, her spirits rose again. My granddaughter says I always get into mischief when she leaves me for a minute, he said, smiling. Then he put his hand in his pocket and took out a few coins. Will this make good the mischief I have done? He asked. Oh, sir, it is too much, Mary said. Th. 